Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. Sitting here today by myself, we do have a very special guest on that is going to be talking about a few different stocks with us. He runs a popular investing podcast himself, and he also has a blog um, where he writes about stuff and also posts a lot of information on Twitter that I think is a pretty good uh, value add to the community. Uh, Mr. Trey Henninger, uh, his ticker is at T-R-E-Y-H-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R. He blogs at DIYinvesting.org. And he also runs the podcast, the DIY Investing Podcast, since 2017, which is a value-oriented podcast. Um, and he's just been a great addition to the community, uh, especially in FinTwit and his blog and then through his podcast. And he's also uh, has had Jeff on the podcast as well, uh, which was a lot of fun. But Trey, how are you doing today? Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm doing well, thank you. That was a that was a great intro. Appreciate yeah, you it. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you bet. And you know, it was interesting uh, when I was doing some prep work for this. I was reading your about me on your website again. That's DIYinvesting.org, and you describe yourself as an engineer, a private investor, and a business owner. So I want to hear about all three of those. Uh, so maybe give it, me a little bit of a background on yourself, how you got into investing. I'm always kind of curious to hear about you know how the bug bit. Uh, you know, the value investor and what, what, uh, you know, drove them to doing what they're doing today. So maybe give a little bit of a background on you. Like I said, you do come from an engineering uh, background. So I'd be definitely curious to hear about how you really ended up in this world of investing. Yeah. So I, I come from a background of engineering, went to college, got uh, an engineering degree. And so I very much think through the world from an engineering mindset, very detail oriented, interested in numbers, but also have concrete um, experience and ongoing experience in like manufacturing industry and have a lot of focused understanding of the manufacturing industry. But it helps me to understand both the pros and the cons of that industry. But I think what it's really helped me do is think about investments from the mindset of how do you make things better? How do you optimize things? And that's really the mindset that I have from being an engineer. So how did I really get into investing? It's something that I've always been interested in for a while. I wouldn't say always, but um, I really got started in college. Um, as I earned money, I then started investing my own money from the very beginning, buying individual stocks um, and kind of getting my feet wet with very, very little money. So any money I could pull together um, doing work in my free time, I would, I would put it into the market and I really kind of learned that way. Um, I've always had this idea and interest in getting rich from a young age. Um, which, you know, it's one of those things that sounds kind of weird, but I think it was always this interest in having freedom and having the ability to do whatever I want to do, not have to do what other people say, have complete freedom around my time. And it wasn't until later that I realized that's basically the financial independence movement. 
Um, but at the time it was just wanting freedom, wanting to think about it that way. And the best way I knew was to get rich. And I had this idea that Warren Buffett was a good example. He invested from a young age. And so I was going to do the same thing. Um, which means I've been on this journey for a little, uh, probably nine to 10 years now, um, of investing my own money. And over that time kind of built up an experience of, being a portfolio manager, not for other people, but for myself. And my portfolio has grown substantially over that time um, as I invest my money. And now um, my day job is still being an engineer, but I moonlight as an investment um, private investor, doing a podcast, doing my blog, sharing the learnings that I have as an investor through that time frame. But I think the key point is, is that have some key understandings of where certain aspects of like a manufacturing business can be very interesting and also the types of times you don't want to avoid it. And I think that's driven a lot of my investments over time is seeing the types of companies from things I see with that engineering mindset um, and how it's shifted me over time to more focus on capital light businesses versus capital intensive businesses. So I don't yeah. know if that answered all of your questions there. But. Yeah, no, it, it did. And I kind of actually want to unpack that a little bit. So how old are you? So right now I am 27. 27 years old. Great. And then so when you first started investing, so you said you were in college, was it, or I guess what you first started, I guess, getting involved with the markets, was it always from an investing standpoint or was it um, like more so from a trading standpoint or have you just always been an investor? So... I've always been an investor. So I, I think for me, I started with the intelligent investor. Um, and so it's always been from a value investing mindset. So like I, I certainly define myself in some ways as a value investor. Um, there's all sorts of terms I could throw up to myself and kind of what fits my style. And we can kind of get into that. But it's always been thinking about investors and not really day trading. But I do remember my first purchases were trying to emulate Warren Buffett. I mean, I had like no money at the time, which would have been great with this no commissions. But at the time, I didn't know that. So some of my first purchases were like Bank of America um, during the financial crisis when it was at $5 a share or something like that. Um, I don't know what it's at now, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's like 50. Yeah. Um, but I bought it because of Warren Buffett bought it. Um, now, granted, I bought like $100 worth and the, the commission at the time was like $8. So, I mean, you can talk about the types of mistake that is. You know, I had 8% of my position cut off with the purchase commission and then another 8% when I sold it um, a few months later, realizing I don't know anything about Bank of America. Um, but so it's been a learning process, but it's really been just kind of those are the types of mistakes you make at 18, 19 years old when you're just investing all the money you have. I mean, so I started totally. an account with $1,000. Um, and I was told you have to be diversified. So that meant 10 stocks at a hundred bucks each, not having any clue the devastating effects of commissions. Um, but it, but it was always tinged from this value investing mindset of, of buying things that are cheap. And that's always clicked with me. Yeah, no. And, th and that's interesting that uh, one of the first stocks you bought was Bank of America, because I don't know if I've spoken about it on the podcast with Jeff, but I had a very similar situation. I think I funded my first account with $500 and I was super young. I can't remember, maybe 
13, 14 years old, 15, uh, somewhere in that time frame. And I was actually in class. And I actually, first stock I ever purchased was Citigroup. And Citigroup, I think at the time was four or five dollars a share. And the reason I really picked it was because I could, you know, allocate five hundred dollars to to oh. that amount of share price. And the interesting story is, is um, you know, a couple of months later or whatever, I remember I was checking the quotes in class. I think I was in a math class, uh, which really I guess speaks to my attention to um, you know uh, being a uh, you know studious. Um, and next thing I, I checked the quote and the, the stock quote was like 30 or $40 per share. And I was like, holy cow, like I, I'm a genius, <laughs> you know, this, it's this easy. And, um, you know, upon, you know, talking to my dad about it and asking him like what happened, they ended up doing a, a reverse split. Uh, so that was my first, I guess for you uh-huh. know, my first stunt at what a reverse split was, but I always think it's kind of a cute story to tell, but it just reminded me of it when you were talking about bank of America, cause I guess, you know, buying Citigroup it's kind of the same industry. And I thought that was, that was kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things that I quickly realized my mistake though. Right. So I moved from that to, okay, I need to concentrate my investments so I don't get chewed up by commissions. And it it led me to buying like Apple stock, which was dirt cheap at the time. I don't know what year it was now, maybe 2012. I probably had like a six month delay or eight month delay before I bought anything else, or maybe it was a year because I was like, I don't know anything what I'm doing. But I ended up buying Apple. Um, and I bought, I think it was like seven shares. And it was my whole portfolio. Um, and this was, of course, before the split. So, I mean, I think the seven, sh- I can't remember how much that was. Maybe $1,200 or $1,500 or something. I can't remember. Yeah. But I, And then I made 60% really quick. I, I've managed to actually buy in and out of Apple three times to always turning into like a 50% gain in like a year. So I'm either a really bad investor or I'm a really good trader for, for the times I've bought mar- large cap stocks. But That's uh, so funny. That's awesome. Uh, so I actually, and, and then there was one other thing about your background that actually interested me a lot. And I think maybe because I come from sort of the same camp and you're 27 years old and you had said that for whatever reason you have always wanted just to become very rich. And that's sort of what, you know, drew you to stocks, investing, et cetera. And I, I have a very similar background to that from a very young age. That's pretty much what all I've ever known and wanted to do as well. So I'm kind of curious, why do you think that, um, you know, from a, a young age when everybody else was thinking about, you know, maybe video games or, you know, girls or, you know, whatever, high school, whatever, um, you were thinking about like how to get rich and wanting to get rich you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear your opinion on that. I don't know if our generation is, you're, you're a couple years older than me, but I don't know if our generation kind of has a different philosophy on that than maybe past generations, um, where sort of the mentality was, you know, grow, uh, you know, go get a job, nine to five, own a house, you know, do well, retire, get a gold watch and, you know, kind of go on with your life. So I'm kind of curious why you think you have always had that, I guess, aspiration to, um, to become incredibly wealthy. Well, you know, I, you always have to be careful about hindsight bias, right? So it's, it's a little difficult for me to say, but I think one of the things, um, well, one you, you mentioned, so I was certainly interested in girls and in, in video games for a long time. And I, you know, I certainly would be wealthier today if I wasn't, but it, it would be, a wouldn't be the experience that I, um, had and it wouldn't be very different you know i certainly look back at i got started in college but think about man what if i started the blog and podcast in college um but i think 
when I look back, um, one of the formative experiences I had when I was young was my parents got divorced. And I think what that did was it forced me to grow up a little earlier. And it meant that I, I really started to be more independent at a younger age than maybe I would have otherwise. I don't know if that's the case, but just like looking back in hindsight, that's what I've kind of thought about at times over the last five years or so when I really, you know, spend time to think back. And I think that's probably one of those pieces where it's like, okay, things are a little more difficult than I wanted them to be or than I would have expected them to be. And so I have to become a little more independent. And it kind of just this ongoing track of by being independent, I can improve my lifestyle. I can improve my control over my life. And I think that meant this pie in the sky. Well, if I'm rich, that can be that. Whether it's accurate or not, that was kind of the young me's version of, of how do I get to where I want to be? How do I have control over my time and what I want to do? Yeah, no, that, that's very interesting. I mean, my background is very similar to that. So that's definitely relatable. And there's actually a saying out there. It says, uh, chips on your shoulder, put chips in your pocket. So I always thought that was uh, kind of interesting. And I've always, you know, kind of just curious to hear about, you know, what leads people to doing, you know, what they're doing today or what put them on that path. And a lot of times it's, you know, it sort of stems back to their childhood in, in some form or fashion. So I think that's actually definitely relatable to other people and myself as well. Uh, so thanks for sharing that with all of us. So I kind of want to dive into, before we talk about stocks, DIYinvesting.org. Um, you know, what is it? Why'd you start it? Why'd you cancel your Focus Compounding membership uh, <laughs> to contribute on this? You used to contribute to the website. No, I'm just kidding. I completely understand why. Uh, but give us a, a little bit of a background on, on the website and you know what you're trying to accomplish and exactly what it is. So I think for me, um, DIYinvesting.org from the very beginning has been the website that I wish I had to learn from when I was learning investing. That's basically the premise behind this blog. Um, that's the premise behind the blog, the premise behind the podcast, premise behind the YouTube videos I create. It's when I was learning to become an investor, there were resources out there I learned from. JoshuaKinnon.com is one of the ones I learned from that was very helpful to me. And I think some of your listeners probably learned from that as well, depending upon their age range. But there were things I liked about that. There were things I thought were missing and so what my goal was is that, hey, I'm learning to be a good investor. I'm learning a lot of things. How can I put that information out there for other people like me? It's not meant for everyone, but it's meant for those that want to manage their own investments. They want to understand investing and they want to be a really good investor. Um, maybe they think about it with an engineering type mindset. Maybe they're detail oriented. Um, maybe they want to think about things from first principles and all those sorts of things. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to create the resource I wish I had. And that's what I'm doing with the blog. And so it's focusing on the things that I think are important. It's focusing on mental models. It's focusing on strategies and techniques that help you become a better investor, like what learning techniques, what habits do you have? It focuses on investing theory um, and really diving into which theories are accurate, which are not. But it spends a lot of time focused as, on companies as well and saying, okay, one of the things that investors need to learn is which companies are good, which companies are high quality, which companies are low quality. And then also how do those things play into 
your effectiveness as an investor in terms of where do you judge yourself? And you really judge yourself on your performance. So what are the drivers of performance? Does quality even matter? Some people say it doesn't. Some people say it do. So, you know, does dividend yield matter? All these little things and really saying, what are the pieces that are important to your return and breaking that down and really to help investors learn the way I've learned. And so, you know, I don't claim to be an expert, but I claim to be someone that's learning and growing as an investor. And I think that I'm building the website over time to create that. Now you mentioned, why did I cancel focus compound? So I used to be a writer for focus compounding. It was a relatively short period of time. I had started the blog beforehand and was working on it. And I realized that when I was contributing to focus compounding, I was creating a lot of good content and spending a lot of time there and I wasn't building my own thing. So focus compounding, I found incredibly great. So for those that haven't subscribed, please subscribe to focus compounding. You're going to get a lot of value out of that. Boom. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, nice layup there that you set for me. But there you go. for the other thing that I recommend for people is to create a blog, create some sort of documentation of their thoughts and in investing. If all you do is write it down for yourself and keep it in a notebook, that works great. But for me, I think the next step is put your stuff out there, get the critique of others, put the information out there so that people can share their thoughts with you because it will make you a better investor and it actually forces you to do it. So I'm trying to build my own, um, online business here, trying to build a following of people that want to learn about investing, want to become better investors. Um, so that's why I have my own products here. Um, my membership program, just like you have a membership program is really focused on key areas of quality, intrinsic value, and then my portfolio. So I really break it down into tiers. The people that just want to learn about quality companies, that's the first tier. Um, I think that one's $5 a month. $10 a month is my intrinsic value analysis. And then $25 a month will get you access to my portfolio and what I'm doing in that level. So that's what I'm doing with, with mine. And, you know, some people find it useful. Maybe you will too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, look, I mean, it's to your point of just becoming a better investor. I mean, I think investing is great. Uh, it's a good way to learn from other people that uh, may think very, you know, similar to the way that you think. And, um, you know, obviously Jeff, he had written on the internet for a very long time. And, um, you know, I think when we first started meeting up, one of the things that he told me was that he wished he, um, you know, had his own, I guess, brand kind of similar to, you know, you doing your own thing as opposed to writing for focus compounding. So, you know, we're, we are obviously always think that's great. And, you know, one of the things that we always tell people too, if they ask how to become a better investor is to start a blog, right? Start putting your information out there. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember how much it costs to start a blog, but I mean, you could, I know you could do it very, um, you know, cheaply, and then you put your information out there for the whole world to see. And to your point of what you said earlier, you know, you're subjecting yourself to criticism, but really that's only going to make you a better investor. So if somebody is, you know, fearful of putting information out there, but they want to become a better investor, it's like, that's going to make you a better investor. And even people that want to make a career out of investing. I think it's a good way to sort of, you know, showcase your, your resume or your intellect, you know, it's a new way of doing it. Um, you know, so I think it's great that you, you have started, um, you know, the blog yourself and that you're, uh, you know, building your online business that way. And, and, you know, while growing as, as an investor as well, what kind of style box would you put yourself into, 
um, with like how you invest. Are you concentrated? What types of companies do you look for? Are you more biased to large cap, small cap, micro cap? Uh, give me a little bit of a background on that. So the first thing I'd say that there's a few different boxes I could put myself in. Um, but I'd first say that I, I don't force myself to stay in any one box. I'm going to go where I feel like I can make money. But there's certain areas that I think I favor myself. And I think the key driver behind all of that is I tend to think from this um, first principles perspective. So I say, I'm going to build up my portfolio from the ground up um, and not from top down. And what that means to me is the first provocative statement is really, I'm not trying to beat the S&P 500. So some people might lose me right there and say, okay, well, why are we listening to this? Well, what I'm doing is I'm not a relative investor. I don't care about beating the S&P 500 by 1%, 2%, 3%. What I'm doing is I'm an absolute return investor. So I target a specific rate of return for my portfolio that I have determined can match my personal goals that I'm trying to achieve with my finances. And what that means for me is my absolute return hurdle is 10%. So I'm trying to build a portfolio and buy individual stocks that each individually can earn 10% over the long term and as a portfolio can earn 10% over the long term. Now, I think in general, that will end up beating the S&P 500 when actually implemented because the S&P 500 historically might have earned 10%, but going forward, even in the most aggressive assumptions, you're looking at something like 8%, and maybe over the next 10 years, it could be much lower than that. Um, those are very common, accepted stuff. Read what Vanguard's predicting. Read read all sorts of these things. They're predicting returns of like 3% over the next 10 years for an S&P 500 type return. So if you're focused simply on relative performance, you could beat the S&P 500 by getting 6% annual returns instead of 3%. But that doesn't help me achieve my goals. You could you can both beat the S&P 500 and underperform your goals. So I'm really focused on that absolute rate of return. Um, the second piece is in order to get that, I'm really focused on being concentrated. So everyone's situation is unique. But as an individual investor, what's important for me is to maximize the value of my time that I spend investing because I still have a day job outside of it. So I only have a limited amount of time each week. Maybe I have five hours, maybe I have 10 hours. Sometimes I have more than that, but usually it's less than 10 hours a week I can spend on investing. That means that I need to maximize the value of that, which means I can't buy a lot of stocks. I can only buy a few number of stocks because not every stock I research is going to be a selection. I might spend 10 hours on a company and not buy it. And I might do that over a lot of companies. So I target, very similar to, to y'all with Focus Compounding, buying five stocks at 20% each because that allows me the ability to buy only one or two companies a year and still do that in my spare time. So I think that's a valuable thing for other people to adopt, but it's also important because if you're going to target an absolute rate of return, even if you're trying to outperform the S&P 500, you need to consider that concentration will help you. Now, it will mean that if you're wrong, you're going to do poorly much worse. But if you're right, you can be much more confident in your investments. And I do that in large part because people talk all the time about the benefits of diversification. But for me, if I put my 100% of my portfolio in the S&P 500, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. That's why I became a DIY investor, because 
I need the comfort of knowing what I own. And if my money was in the S&P 500, it makes me nervous. It makes me really nervous to own companies that I don't understand that I haven't valued. So I only own companies I've valued. And I'm then to make the concentration work, I fall into the quality camp. So really, I'm trying to hit a high conviction investment that's highly reliable, highly effective. So I'm trying to buy high quality companies in a concentrated portfolio at low prices, and I'm targeting an absolute rate of return greater than 10%. Now, I do think that because I'm doing that and I'm buying them with margin of safety, my rate of return is going to well exceed 10% in the long run, but that's my target. Yeah, and I think we think very similar um, when it comes to that, right? So the way that Jeff and I, when we typically value a company, is we think about what the stock could return potentially um, you know, for the next 10 years. And if you find a situation where, for example, maybe the stock could return, I don't know, 15% for the next 10 years, oftentimes, you know, you could actually get a greater IRR than that, um, because the return happens in year two or year three or year four. Um, you know, but if it makes sense from, you're coming at it, I guess, from a margin of safety perspective of this investment makes sense over the next 10 years and you happen to maybe get a, a multiple re-rating or something along those lines in year two, year three, or year four, um, you know, that's when you could outperform. And I think the way you're approaching it is great because it's almost like an inverted way of, of approaching it, right? You're coming at it from the perspective of 10%. Um, and you know, you, like you just said, you think that you could actually outperform it, but if you're coming at it with the mindset of it being 10%, obviously anything that does happen is kind of just the cherry on top of the cake. Yeah. I mean, basically my, I do 10% targeted returns and I give zero credit for multiple expansion. So my 10% hurdle has to be hit with my, you know, basically I calculate an intrinsic value that determines what the price I need to buy it at to be 10% is. And then I buy it at 35% lower than that. So that's already putting you at like a 13 or 14% return simply by the internally created cash flow. And if you get multiple expansion on top of that and you're able to sell it in let's say two, three, four years, well, now instead of a 14% return or a 13% return, you're looking at something like 20 to 30%. Yeah. Does it happen every time? No. But I don't want to take credit for anything the market's going to give me because I don't trust it. Other people do and other people make a lot of money that way, but other people lose money that way too. So I'm trying to be very conservative because you might have traders that can profit off of a 51% hitting ratio basically. So they can... They can win 51% of the time. But for me to win with a concentrated portfolio, I need a 90% plus success rate because I'm putting 20% of my portfolio in a company. So I have to be really sure that that company is a good investment because I don't want to lose any money. Yeah, that's interesting. And you know, this kind of reminds me of, um, you know, everyone likes to use the the example of Buffett and Munger buying C's candies and how they always say, oh, that was the first company that he actually paid up for quality. But I think if you actually look at the numbers, I don't ha remember them right now, but I think it's, you know, he still paid maybe what, seven to eight times pre-tax um, yeah. earnings or something like that. I mean, it was not a, an expensive price yeah, he moved um, by value investor standards. Times. Yeah, you know, so it's, so, I mean, he's, he really rarely pays up. And even when people say he pays up, uh, that's still cheap for, uh, you know, a lot of people. 
So I thought that was uh, that was interesting. I think you you know, given your background as well, you're a great example for a lot of people. I mean, with your blog and providing content and your podcast and your YouTube videos, and then actually being a private investor yourself, um, because you do have a full time job. And I, I don't remember if you were expecting a baby or you do have a newborn, but I know you have a lot going on in your personal life as well. Um, but there's a lot of people that reach out either to Jeff or myself about, you know, how do you, how should I allocate time uh, to incorporate investing in my life? And uh, I think you're a good example for a lot of people. I mean, what sort of, do you have any sort of habits or some sort of structure that you religiously follow to stay consistent with all that because you do have a full-time job. And I know, like I said, you do have stuff going on in your personal life as well. Um, do you have anything or any sort of advice that you could give to the listeners on that? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I definitely have stuff going on in my personal life. I mean, you'll probably see a, a slight drop off in activity as a, we're, we are expecting a baby soon, but, um, I think the key thing for me is, uh, you know, I'm working a full-time job but I've structured my schedule in a way that allows me a dedicated period of time, which is usually five to 10 hours a week where I can put in time for investing. And this is something that not everyone can do, but at least my career as an engineer gives me enough flexibility to do it. So I, I work a four hour work week, 10 hours a day. So I work um, Monday through Thursday and then I have Fridays off every week. And what that allows me to do is instead of working a 40 hour work week, 10 hours a day, I just work a 50 hour work week and have that 10 hour Friday as my investing day. And that's when I produce the podcast and I produce all the blog posts and do all my investing research. And I do all of that in the Friday. Now I'd say every other Friday that 10 hours becomes like two or three. So you know, I average probably five hours a week on investing, but I think five hours a week is enough if you are doing a concentrated portfolio. Because if you think about that over 52 weeks, you know, and you take two weeks off, that's 250 hours a year. That's enough time to sort through a lot of ideas. As long as you're being, you know, careful about what you're considering buying, focusing on high quality companies, value, you could at least value, let's say, 20 companies in that time frame, 25 companies in a year, if you have 250 hours, 10 hours each, and all you need is one or two purchases a year. So if you do this type of investing, and it's what I've structured my website on and what I've structured my podcast on, is trying to help those people that are doing this in their spare time. Because most people don't have, they're not investment managers. And if they are, now I certainly have some that listen to my podcast, I certainly have some that read my blog, they have an advantage over individuals. And so if you're an individual private investor, you are at a disadvantage. So you need to focus on playing to your strengths. You need to focus on buying less companies because it means that you can put in the same amount of time per company that a professional does. If they have a 30 stock portfolio and you have a five stock portfolio, they might put in 10 hours per stock. You can also put in 10 hours per stock. So now you've narrowed that gap. If you focus on smaller companies like micro caps or very small nano caps, stuff that's below $50 million that institutional investors don't even go for, well, now you've narrowed that gap because you're not competing with those professionals. So my whole strategy is designed to narrow the gap between I don't want to compete against professionals. I'm trying to limit my competition against, you know, the Jeffs and Andrews of the world that, you know, are starting these funds. And so I'm trying to avoid competing with those that 
have advantages over me. Sure. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's great. And a lot of people could definitely relate to that. So let's uh, jump into talking about a few different stocks. And I know a company that you own is Entercom Communications, ticker ETM. And I'm looking at the market cap enterprise value right now. And we could go over all of it. Uh, market cap for those that aren't familiar with the company, 628 million and then enterprise value 2.61 billion. Uh, so maybe give me a little bit, uh, uh, pitch me on Entercom. I mean, what, exactly brought you to it. I remember Jeff and I, we looked at it a few years ago and yeah, so, uh, it was a special situation. I remember, and I remember we looked at it and we ended up passing on it, but yeah, you ended so, up buying it. So I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. So special, uh, intercom is a special situation. It wasn't a spinoff, but it, it was a reverse Morris trust reverse mortgage merger basically. So intercom communications is a radio company um, they own radio stations throughout the United States. They're the second largest radio station operator in the United States, second to iHeartMedia, which people have probably heard of. You've probably not heard of Intercom because they don't brand their stations according to Intercom. Um, but then Cumulus Media is the number third. What happened was, is you had another competitor in the market called CBS Radio. CBS Radio was bought by Intercom, but CBS Radio was about two to three times the size of Intercom when Intercom bought them. And so it's basically what's called a reverse merger. They bought it with basically a stock purchase of combining the two companies. It was spun off the CBS company and then combined with Intercom. Now, why is that interesting? Well, the first key thing to know is, is during this time, iHeartMedia and Cumulus were bankrupt or about to become bankrupt and declare bankruptcy. I think both have since declared bankruptcy, um, but Intercom hasn't. And the key piece is that Intercom is the best operator in the industry. Um, so this occurred in November 2017 when they merged. Immediately after the merger and basically for the next 24 months, the CEO and Chairman Emeritus of Intercom were constantly buying back their stock. Um, but yes, I was introduced to it right around the time after the merger, very quickly after that, I think. Um, there was an article posted on Focus Compounding about it, and I was a member at the time. Um, and the interesting piece was, is directly after the merger, the stock price cratered from about $12 per share down to $8 per share. Um, and I bought share the first time i bought shares was probably around that eight dollar range 850 or something in that time frame right when it was starting to crater and part of the problem was is when the merger occurred you had a company that was now 65 percent owned by old cbs shareholders these were shareholders that wanted to own a television company but now were stuck with radio stock in their portfolio and they started selling and liquidating it meanwhile you had the radio shareholders that were a minority and the managers of it were buying back as much stock as they could, not with um, company money, but with their own money. And to illustrate what this is, on the date of the merger, the chairman of it, so basically it was founded 40 years ago by um, the Fields family. And Joseph Fields is the dad, and his son currently is the CEO of the company. Um, I think it's David Fields. Yes. Yeah, yep, David. Yep. Um, and Joseph when the merger occurred, owned 3.6 million shares of Common. Today, he owns 13 million. 
Wow. So, over the course now, some of that was some change. One million of that was changing some of his super voting B shares into A shares and switching them and giving them to his son. But what it works out to is over the last 24 months, he's bought 8.4 million shares in the open market at market price. Um, and if you think about, he started buying at $11.80 a share. The current stock price is $4.60, yeah, $4.69. I think his average purchase price for those 8.4 million shares is somewhere around $7 a share. Um, most likely it was higher, but it's probably in that seven to seven fifty range. And so let's just call it $60 million of insider buys over the last two years. That was significant. And this is one of the things that I look for in investments. I'm looking for insider buying because I want to be sure that the management thinks about a company that like I do and that they're invested. So if, if the company does badly, they'll get hit too. But they're also encouraged to do the things I want. I want them to buy back stock. I want them to give me dividends. And I want them to make smart decisions for the long-term future of the company. The interesting thing about the, their insider buying is they've done this a few times before. Because you might ask, well, where did their $60 million come from? And it all came from owning Intercom stock. And what they've done is this is now the third time that they have a range of insider buys and sells. So they've not yet sold any shares since doing this cycle, but the last two times they did, one time was in 2009, and I think the other time was during the uh, 2000s crash. They bought a ton of shares, and they were able to flip them a few years later for multiples on the price that they bought them. So the thought process is, is the, they're pretty well aware of when is a good time to buy their stock. The other piece that's important for this investment thesis is that the radio industry is not capital intensive at all. You don't have to invest any capital into it. So when the company earns cash, it's all owner's earnings. It can all be distributed to shareholders or used to pay down debt or used to buy back stock. So this is basically a leveraged buyout of, the, of a very large operator. And they've been a roll up over the course of the last 40 years. So what they do is they take on debt then they pay it down for a bit, they buy more radio stations, they pay it down for a bit, they buy more radio stations, they pay it down for a bit. And they're the most experienced operators in that they have profit margins of, say, 25% gross profit, and their competitors might average 15 to 20. So they'll buy competitors that have synergies, and then they've actually been able to demonstrate that. So that's the basic thesis. If I remember this, the uh, situation correctly, they were basically, I mean, with the reverse Morse trust, it was a minnow swallowing a whale, right? Yeah. So basically, they were, they were small. I mean, they weren't super tiny, but they were like the fifth or sixth biggest, and they were swallowing like the third biggest, and it made them the second largest in the industry. Um, but what they were doing is they said, hey— We've been buying one or two radio stations a year for 40 years or something like that. And it's, or sometimes five at a time, sometimes six at a time, but they ended up buying, I'm probably going to get the number wrong, but it would be something like 80 or hundred stations. And they said, we know how to turn stations around. We're going to take this on. We can turn them around, increase their profit, and then we can pay down the debt and become more profitable. And it's going to be a huge gain for them because now they have national reach and it's not worked out as well as they thought, which should be expected. You shouldn't always trust that these mergers are going to work. Yeah. But it's worked out well enough that their synergies have actually been able to pull the costs out of the business. And the only thing that – so all of their cost targets they've hit because that's, that's their skill set. What they didn't anticipate was that when CBS radio was transferred to Intercom – 
the employees had been doing so bad there for a while, not the employees, but let's just say the, the management of those stations and how they're running caused them to lose revenue faster than expected. So that's all been turned around since then, but it meant that instead of growing from a baseline, they had to dip first and now they're growing from a lower baseline. So it's why their stock price is probably lower than they expected. But for clarity, they're going to earn somewhere in the range of a dollar per share this year um, for 2019. And you know their stock price is below $5 a share. So you're looking at over a 20% um, earnings and cash flow yield. Got it. Yeah, that's a, you know, it definitely uh, looks cheap when you look at it. And I remember it was an interesting situation and uh, we did look at it, like I said, that was back in 2017. And I can't remember exactly why Jeff passed on it. Um, but I do remember that it was, it was, you know, a smaller company and, you know, looking to acquire a much bigger company. And, um, you know, and I do remember the selling pressure after it happened, which to your, what you said earlier, uh, would most likely be, you know, CVS, um, you know, selling out. Um, what are your thoughts on just radio in general going forward? I'd be very curious to hear about that. So I think radio, um, is here to stay. Now, you could say I'm biased or whatever, I have a monetary interest in it, but I think you should. Um, what it means is that if I didn't believe that, I sh- I've backed it up with my own money. So I think generally people mistake these things, but I think radio is here to stay in that it's not like cable TV versus streaming. And I think this is very important because the, the common refrain is like, well, how does it compete with a Spotify? How does it compete with Apple Music? How does it compete with Sirius XM or something like that? The difference between TV and radio is that radio's free and TV was paid. So what you have is there's a huge function, and this is how might be my engineering way of thinking, but basically when you have something that's expensive and a competitor can come out with something cheaper, if the product's both cheaper and better, there's a huge push for customers to slowly trickle in the direction of the cheaper and better competitor. You don't have that with radio. No matter how much streaming's out there, radio's free. It's just ad-supported. Most of these streaming services charge money and are ad-supported. So even if they're better, you don't have the dual mandate of being cheaper. And you can never be cheaper than free. So you have this inherent advantage that these radio stations can't be competed with on price because they've already targeted their price and they're profitable at free, which makes it very difficult to unseat them. The second piece is, this one's a little bit less um, important now that the streaming is around, but you also aren't going to have more competition from other radio stations. People aren't creating new radio stations. There's only fewer radio stations in the future, and usually there's never any fewer. The number of radio stations is stable or declining. And there's restrictions on how many radio stations you can own in a local area. What people struggle with is that a lot of times radio stations are very personality driven. So just like you might watch entertainment because you like, let's say, a movie. You like a movie that's Brad Pitt in it. Brad Pitt draws people to watch that movie regardless of the topic. The same thing is true for radio stations. You have personalities that draw people to listen whether they're um, whatever radio station they're on or whether they're online. So those personalities and those niches 
are captured by Intercom in a lot of local markets. They own many sports stations, but really radio as a whole has a niche that won't ever go away. It might get smaller as a percentage, but in large part, even the projections by industry standards, even by projections by the streaming services project that radio revenue is only going to increase over the next 10 years. It's not the mainstream view for investors, but I think that's why it's an interesting opportunity. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It creates the opportunity. No, I I generally agree with everything that you just said. I kind of want to shift gears and talk about Northfield Precision, uh, which this company, I guess, is a little bit more in our uh, pond that we fish in, Um, even though we have never looked at this company. But I mean, I'm just kind of I was searching around on Bloomberg and and Guru Focus and Yahoo Finance trying to find out what the market cap on. Yeah, absolutely nothing. And I if I remember correctly, I think it's like what less than 10 million dollar market cap correct that's correct yeah yeah i mean and there's absolutely there's no market cap quote or anything on that so maybe give me the background on that i mean how did you even come across this company so what i've found is the best way to source new ideas is usually from other investors usually from investing blogs something along those lines is where i've found the greatest value in sourcing ideas. And that's the same thing for Northfield Precision. So Northfield Precision is a very small company. The market cap is sub $5 million um, without being prepared with the exact number of shares right now. I'm trying to get pulled up my uh, research on it. Um, I can't say the exact number, but it's sub $5 million um, for their market cap. And I learned about it through elementaryvalue.com. David Field that hosts that blog, investing blog, has a great does a great, a great job. Um, yeah. Lots of really good ideas, lots of interesting ideas. He wants dark companies and he, lo- he only wants to buy companies sub 10 million. So it's a great for sourcing ideas that you have low competition on. But what I found interesting, he's, he does this write up and he says, Hey, there's this company it's earning. Yeah. Maybe I just er- pull up his blog real quick. Um, so he's like, this company is really small. It's $4 million. Um, I don't like it. It, it's not, it's too expensive for me, and I get. But it's like, it's a nano cap. It's trading at a PE of six point five and a price to sales of 0.5. So for clarity, this is a stock that when he wrote it up was sub four million dollars. The share price was like sixteen dollars a share. At the time he wrote it up, the company was earning two dollars a share, and that was 2018. So in 2018 full year, they earned two dollars a share, and the price was sixteen dollars a share. Well. Okay, I do some research on it. Um, the The financials are, it's a dark company. So I like dark companies because institutional investors don't target them as much. And I like tiny companies because institutional investors don't target them as much. People like to look at companies that are SEC reporting. Well, reporting to the SEC can cost a company, let's say a million dollars or half a million dollars a year in fees, auditing, all sorts of things. But if you focus on dark companies, they, can, they don't have the ability to pay those costs sometimes, and it allows them to be a really interesting idea. So this is a company that if you want the financials, you have to email them and ask for them. Now, they're great. They'll email, do you have to be a shareholder? You do not have to be a shareholder. Got it. So all you got to do is you got to email them, and they'll mail them out to you, and you'll get them in the mail. Um, the investor relations person is really great. Um, I actually have a copy of their 2013, 2014, all the way to 20, I guess, 18, because 2019s aren't out yet, um, annual reports. 
And each annual report has financials for three years. So I have financials back to, I think, 2012 or something, 2012 or 2011. Um, the cool thing is you just ask and they'll send out the copies that they have. Now, the interesting thing about this was he writes this up and he says, okay, you know, I don't like it. It's kind of hard to tell, but their earnings were really interesting. And basically it goes, they earned like half a, they earned 50 cents a share in 13, 50 cents a share in 14, 50 cents a share in 15, 15 cents a share in 16. And then in 2017, they earned a dollar per share. In 2018, they earned $2 per share. Or in 20, yeah. And then 2019, their fiscal years shifted. But basically, their most recent year that they came out with, they earned $4 a share. Oh, wow. So you have a company that over the last three years has grown earnings at 100% a year. And it's just taking off. It's like, and the interesting part is, is their return on incremental investment exceeds 100% because they're, it's, there's not issuing shares. They have no debt or they have some debt, um, but they're, it's all fixed, um, fixed rate, interest rate debt, but it's very low debt. They're basically net, they're net cash and they're growing at 100% a year, but they're trading for four times earnings. What, what does the company do? So the company produces precision instruments for manufacturing companies. And this is what's really, this is where I drew some of my manufacturing experience and maybe I'm more comfortable with it. But what they do is they basically build um, what are known as chucks. So it's for air diaphragm and call it chucks. And what it is, is it's the metal piece that is used to hold a tool. So if you think about it, um, you know, when you're working on your house, you might have, let's say, you know, a hammer and you're trying to hold your nail in place and you do that with your hand. Well, that works great with your, when you're working on your, a very small item, but in industry, in manufacturing environments, you need big pieces of equipment and you need very precise pieces of equipment. They need to be built to the, like to the half millimeter or something like that. What that means is that the input costs are very low because it's just metal and they have to create it into a very precise shape. So, but they're trying to create a very quality product. It means that they have no, like very low competition because it's very hard to do that. But your input costs are low, but your sale price is high and they don't compete on price. Because what would happen is if this equipment fails, let's say the equipment costs $10,000. If it fails, the company that's using it might lose $5 million in lost production. So they don't care if they charge you $10,000 or $20,000 for the part, they just need it to work. And so you have this really small company that's high quality because they're producing a business critical piece of equipment and they happen to be one of the world leaders in it. The difference is, is that it's just a very small industry. Um, so I like it. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting and I, you know, I'm really curious to hear about like, how'd you get to that level of comfort where, you know, there's absolutely no information about this company on the internet. It looks like I'm looking at their website right now. Um, you have to email them to get an annual report. I mean, do you do any additional scuttlebutts? I mean, I know you're a concentrated investor, so you're going to put 20% of your, um, you know, your portfolio in a company like this, potentially. How yeah. do you get to that level of, you know, just being comfortable enough to actually do that? So, um, this one was hard and I think it's because it was dark and it was my first dark company that I was buying. Um, so what I did was 
I read. I mean, the, did you do any additional scuttlebutts? Any you know yeah, to get more comfortable? Talk to management. I didn't. So actually, I I didn't talk to management. Um, but what I did do was, I I, I went up and looked the company up. They have I, I read everything on their website, all of it. You know, I got all the financials. I looked up their history for what I could find, searching news reports to see that they were real. Because I think the main concern with this is like, is this a fraud? Does this company exist? You know, is this someone that's just sending out this fake stuff? Sure. Yeah. Um, the interesting part is you can read data that shows that they were they were hit badly by Hurricane Sandy in New York. Um, so they're based in New York State. Um, and when the hurricane hit, it destroyed their manufacturing facility. And they had to rebuild it in 2011 and 2012. Um, which is why um, they've been able to ramp up recently because now they've rebuilt, you know, they, they kind of rebuilt to a small level and then it took some time to get customers back and start growing again. Um, but you could find research that shows, hey, that that's that really happens. And then I can look up online and I was able to use Google Maps and say, hey, this company exists. I can go and see the facility, um, not inside it, but I can see the building. I can see cars are parked there. I can I can see that this place is really there. Um but besides talking to the investor relations person, I didn't reach out to management itself because that was sufficient for me to know, hey, this this isn't a fraud. I can I found third party reference that this is a real company that exists here. Um, they do pay dividends, which certainly helps. So when you own sure. shares, and you get dividends in your account. Um, that's a very positive sign that this place at, at least isn't a total fraud. It, yeah, know, yeah. Argue about a Ponzi scheme, but um I've never seen a Ponzi scheme that has zero shares traded for most uh, days and weeks. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, I actually, I, I figured out that I was the only per person buying the stock for at least a few months um, because on the average week, zero shares would trade. I mean, there'd be months where no shares trade at all. So it took a long time for me to acquire my position and I was actually only able to buy 5% of the company, not 5% of the company, 5% um, five, 5 of my portfolio um, into the stock before I got stuck and, and decided to wait because of the price was not where I wanted it to be. And I wasn't as much so comfortable with it. Um, but basically I read it, I reached out to the, to them and got the financials and I didn't even buy it initially until I completed all that due diligence. And when I did buy it, I only bought 5% because I wanted to see if the $4 per share, um, was going to sustain itself. So I'm waiting for the, the, full year 2019 earnings to see, Hey, is, is it going to be $4? Is it going to continue growing to $5? And if it continues growing, I'll probably increase it substantially. But, um, yeah, no, it's, that's definitely an interesting idea. It's definitely, you know, I, I, I know you had said that, you know, you're sort of agnostic and we'll go wherever you, you see potential value, but I really do feel like you're more in that Buffett 1.0 camp and which is obviously very similar to what Jeff and I do as well. Um, you know, really where you could just find these interesting ideas that, you know, don't really correlate to the market to your point, your point earlier, you're really not worried about relative results. Um, but like a, a position like this is going to act on its own performance and its own fundamentals, as opposed to the S P 500 being up or, or down on the day. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is, is the share, the shares basically don't trade. Um, I mean the 90 day, um, for instance, like the current 90 day average shares exchanged, I think is zero. Maybe I, I, I mean, I need to look, um, I'm looking, uh, yeah, let's see. I did have it up. Hold on. Uh, nine average volume for the past 30 days is 99 shares, 99 shares. Okay. Yeah. That was because one person bought 2000 shares in a day. 
Um, nice. Yeah, there was a 20. So like, but if you think about how many shares have traded. So the shares have only traded two times this year. Actually, no, the shares have only traded once this year so far. And it's we're recording in the late January. Um, and they traded on one day, which was yesterday for 700 shares. And then the last time before that was in the second week of December for 2200. So the last 30 days is kind of weird. But if you look at it in general, it's trading basically no volume. And when I was buying it, the 90 day average was zero because no one had bought it in a long time. Um, so I mean, my, my stock prices, my average share cost is a little bit lower than this. It's currently at like 1960, but, um, got but, it. You know, do you have a, do you have a, a specific way that you put limits out there? Yes. To so, buy like companies in these illiquid securities or buy stock yeah, in these so illiquid what I like to do markets? Is I figure out how many shares I want and I just put the limit order out there for everything I want. Um, and I'll put it at the last price for something that's so illiquid like this where nothing's trade. Like, I mean, there's no bid and ask. Well, I guess it's after hours right now, but um, I put it at the most recent share price and then I just let it sit there. So I think, you know, let's say I was buying a hundred shares or not, maybe not a hundred shares. Let's say I was buying like a thousand shares or something. I put that out there knowing that that's not how many shares trade in the typical day. Now, what tends to happen in these really small stocks is either no one puts anything out there at the ask, but that's usually rare. There's other people that are interested in these companies. They're just unlikely to do much movement, but they'll put out an offer on the ask and they'll probably meet your number of shares or close to it, or maybe they'll only do a little bit. And what it, a lot of times you'll see is, okay, maybe someone will offer hundred shares. I might pick that up if it only causes the stock price to go up half a percent, but 10, usually I don't want the price to rise at all. So maybe I'll put this, put out a thousand shares, see if a wait a week, if no shares exchange, then I might lower my bid to below the most recent price and see if I can pull a volume out. And what I was able to do, I'm just using a thousand shares as an example is I would wait until it's like, oh, someone's offering a thousand shares and let's say it's 7% above the most recent at trade price. I'll just take it all out because I want to, I want to fill my order. And for a company like this, that's trading at four times earnings, I know that I can double the share price and I'm happy because I'm still getting an eight times earnings. But if I can only move it 6%, that's great. I don't mind moving the stock price if I can fill my whole position um, when someone offers it. So I'm trying to get people to put their offer out there in these tiny companies and then I'll just take them out um, completely. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, we do something similar. I think a lot of people would be surprised how you could just throw a large order out there, even in these very illiquid securities. And, you know, somebody will take you out either because they've just been waiting for this for a very long time or they just see a big order or what. Um, but, you know, the, the way that we typically do it, and of course, every situation is different, is we'll just put, you know, we'll beat the bid by one cent. We'll put out a limit, a GTC order, and then we'll revisit it in a week, you know. Yeah. But I think really the more patient you are, um, the better, uh, because obviously, you know, you just don't want to bid the stock up. Uh, but I think a lot of people would be very surprised how you could get into these illiquid securities, you know, fairly, I don't want to say fairly easy. Um, it's not like it's Apple or Microsoft or any of those companies, but you know, you could, you could get in and get out. Yeah. I mean, it took me, it took me probably two to three months to build a 5% position, um, in my portfolio and all, and in those three, let's say it's two months. And in those two months, um, on, I only had two transactions. 
So, I mean, it's just to get you an idea that it, and there were no other transactions in that time frame. So I was the only one that bought the stock in those two to three month time frame, but I was able to do it in two, two full transactions. So it, you know, you just have to be patient. And if you want to buy your whole port, you know, position in a day, these small liquid stocks aren't going to work for you, but it, I like it because, you know, my position can be up 15% in a year with no change, even though the company got 50% better. And then all of a sudden one day it might double or triple. So yeah, uh, just yeah. an interesting one. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely interesting. And we're coming up, uh, actually, I think we just passed an hour. Um, but I really want to hear about this last company, a company okay. that you, you've talked about. That's Pine Lawn Cemetery. And the reason I want to hear about it is because Jeff and I, it's on our, our watch list. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, you know, we've actually talked about, you know, different ways of scuttlebutt. Um, you know, how we could find out more information about this company. I don't know how familiar Jeff is with it. I'm not familiar with it other than, you know, what it is itself. Um, but I'm really curious to hear about how you came across this. Um, you know, maybe I guess, you know, the name kind of gives it away, but tell a story and, um, you know, why you invested in it. And I guess, um, you know, why you think it's a good company. So Pine Lawn Cemetery is another one I got from David Flood, um, on elementary value. Um, this one I actually didn't really know anything about until I invited him on my podcast and interviewed him. Um, so if you're interested in hearing his perspective on it, you can do that. But as far as I'm aware, he's not bought any stock. This is all the great thing. You can get ideas from investors and they don't buy it and, and you love it. So Pine Lawn's the favorite, my most, Pine Lawn is my favorite stock in my portfolio right now. And what I mean by that, it has the highest probability of achieving a 10% return of any company I own. And it's the one that I have the highest conviction in basically. And my selling point is this is this is a cemetery company, but it's more complicated than that. And if you just look it up, you're going to say, oh, it's a cemetery. You know, they, they operate in New York State. Um, but really, this is this is on New York, maybe Manhattan Island, I think, or I'm going to get someone's going to butcher this, but uh, Long Island. I think, yeah, it's on Long Island. So the, what I want to sell you on is is think about the most expensive piece of real estate that you can think of. It might be if you've listened to the Focus Compounding podcast, you might think about Maui land and pineapple. Well, that's not true. The most expensive piece of real estate is going to be a cemetery in a place like Hawaii or in a place like New York City. And the reason for that is because instead of selling a house at $1,000 per square foot or something like that, you're going to be selling an acre of land at multiple millions or like what I anticipated is this is a company that if you think about market cap, which isn't completely applicable with this company, but they have something in the range of, let's say, 26 million shares. I might need to check them. They're not 26 million shares, um, like $26 million in market cap. I calculated that their asset value of the land that they own when sold at the cemetery plot prices that they're selling at is in the billions of dollars. So there's, I think I'll have to check the numbers, but it's something like $2 billion worth of land based upon their current day selling price. Now they can't sell it all at once, but the key point is, is they're selling a small coffin sized piece of land and you can fit hundreds of those in every acre, but you might be able to sell that coffin sized piece of land for $5,000. So it's incredibly valuable the land that they have because you also can't build any new cemeteries on long island no one's going to approve it when the land cost millions and millions of dollars an acre already to put a new cemetery and no one wants a cemetery next to their house so first thing to be aware of is this is not actually a company 
Um, it's actually a not-for-profit. So what I realized in my scuttlebutt, it's a bunch of research on their website. I reached, I looked into the New York Cemetery Board um, meeting minutes, um, read basically as much of a hundred years of court history on this company that I could find, but basically they are a not-for-profit. So they can't make any, they're not allowed to make any profit. Um, so they don't have shareholders. So they basically, all the people with cemetery plots can vote to elect the board and that runs the company. But what they do have is a real estate trust and the real estate trust is what the common shares are that you can find on the OTC markets. And that's what I own is the common shares in the real estate investment trust. Or it's a real estate trust, not a land trust, basically. Um, what that trust does is the not-for-profit is contractually obligated to pay 37.5% of their net revenue for every cemetery plot sale to the land trust. And they have to pay it out twice a year, every year, forever, as long as they continue to sell plots. The interesting thing about this is they have gone to court multiple times about this in the last hundred years or last 150 years, and they've always lost. And what it's been very clear is that the Supreme Court has very clearly stated that they must, in all circumstance, pay their dividends because they aren't the money of the not-for-profit. They're actually the money of the land trust owners. So as a land trust owner, when someone buys a cemetery plot in this group of land, 37.5% of that is my money, you know, on a prorated basis. And I know the dividends with 100% reliability will be paid because I have multiple Supreme Court cases backing this up. It's no longer in dispute. Um, and they've been paying these dividends, as far as I can tell, for the last 80 years straight. Yeah, it looks like it's an 8.8% dividend yield. Yeah, so an 8.8% dividend yield. So the thing to bring in here is think about tips. Um, Treasury inflected inflation protected securities. Currently, I believe tips are trading for a negative yield, if I understand right. Um, the yield on these Treasury inflected inflation protected securities is negative in the sense that people are willing to take a negative nominal yield, well, a negative real yield in order to get a nominal yield that's positive. Well, basically, Pine Lawn is a tips that trades at 8.8%. Because the price of their cemetery plots are going to go up with inflation, and it's going to be the inflation of New York State. They have a history of doing this. You can read the cemetery board um, statements where they say, hey, you know, we have higher expenses. We need to raise the price of these land plots. They get it approved. And that means that they're able to then pass on higher dividends to this land trust. And you also have no business risk because – it doesn't matter if they're profitable as a cemetery. All that matters is if they sell plots. And sitting in New York State, there's huge demand because it's a you know eight million people in New York in the New York City area, and there's not enough cemetery plots there. And it also happens to be one of the nicest in the entire state, one of the nicest in the country. Um, so they are high-end cemetery plots. They have permanent demand. There's always going to be people dying and predictable. It's predictable. There's a hundred percent certainty. You're going to get your dividends and the dividends exceed anything achievable in the stock market. Now I've probably killed my chances of ever buying more shares of stock by coming on this show to talk about it. I was going to say, but, 
<laughs> but but it's it, it's so interesting because it fits the norm of what I'm looking for in that you have a company or at least an asset because it's it's hard to think about it as a company because you're really more of a land trust. But the big question is when do the dividends end? And at least based on my research and by the statements presented by the CEO of the company to the state government, they believe that the divi- that they have enough land to last over 200 years. So it. it doesn't need to be 200 years. Basically, if it's over 30 years, you can just do an infinite um, DCF calculation and it works out to be the same or 50 years. But I have full expectation that I can buy shares in this company and I'm never going to sell them for the rest of my life because I can achieve a 10% return. Yeah, I have definitely. 8.8 8, and I think whatever inflation is, I expect it to exceed 1.2%. So It's such has- an interesting idea. And I mean, it's just... I guess in this, I guess, you know, oddball territory of these, I mean, this is obviously a true overlooked stock. It's just, you just find certain situations that you would never find in obviously like the mid or large cap space, or even the small cap space. Yeah. I mean, the members of my website can, can read some of the research. I have it behind paywalls, basically all the, the kind of research and breakdowns that I've done on the company because, um, I don't want it just out there, you know, for easy access and searchability. But, um, yeah, I, I break one down about why I think it's high quality and why I think the intrinsic value is higher than what it is today. But it's all based upon what you want to achieve. Um, and Do you remember so- why David passed on the idea? David Flood? Yeah, so David, he passed on it for, I think, a really interesting reason. And I think it's a better reason than the one he passed on for Northfield. But he passed on it because his part of his process is really looking at stock charts. And so he wants to see the company kind of look forgotten and kind of hit like a bottom um, and only buy on the bottoms. Um, and so he was really thinking this would be a great deal at like a 15% yield. And I, I don't disagree with him. It would be an awesome yield at 15%. Um, but I think the key thing that he found is that they pay dividends twice a year. When the dividend is paid, they fall by the dividend price, and, but they also fall much further than that. So his his thesis is basically if you buy the stock immediately after dividends are paid, you're going to get a much better dividend yield than if you buy it at any time, um, which I think is accurate. But I recently had a lot of cash I was trying to invest. So I, I raised it to a 20% position before then. But I'd probably put a lot more in it if it actually dropped a bunch. Got it. That's great. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting idea. And everyone, you should definitely check out um, Trey's blog and his, uh, you know, his Twitter and his podcast. I mean, bringing ideas like this, obviously it's just, just something that's totally off the beaten path and definitely something that you should study. Trey, in closing, one of my favorite questions that I always like to ask the guests that come on is what advice would you give to other investors that you've learned just from your journey on just really becoming a better investor in 2020? Um, hmm. I'll give you a, one quick simple one while I, while I think about a second one that I think I want to give. Because the first one is just, we already said it, but the, the best thing you can do is start a blog or a podcast. I mean, you need to journal your investment ideas. Before you buy a stock, you need to write down why you're buying it. I have written down why I'm buying a stock before I bought it. And after writing it down, I said, this makes no sense. I'm not going to buy it. I've saved myself thousands and thousands of dollars by simply writing a blog post. You could do the same thing, 
but it's going to help you in ways you don't realize. You're going to grow your network of investors. You're going to get feedback. You're going to have better ideas. You're going to have people share ideas with you. Um, the ideas you're going to receive from learning from others is going to be incredibly helpful for you. But I think beyond that, what you really want to focus on if you want to be a better investor is you just need to do it. Um, stop reading investing news and start investing because every minute that you spend on investing news is real time you're spending. If you spend hours reading CNBC each week, you can't also claim to have no time to be an investor an individual investor. So just focus on where you're spending your time and be very um, diligent in managing it. Because when I look back at what I regret, it's wasting time on activities that I didn't really care about, but just were fun in the moment. Um, I enjoy doing the investing and I think that's important. So I just encourage you to find something you enjoy. If it's investing, great. Um, but if you realize you don't enjoy spending your time investing and that's why you're not doing it, also maybe consider another path because you don't want to lose money simply because you think that managing your own investments is the only way to go. So that, that's my advice. No, I think that's that's great. And I think, uh, you know, it'll be relatable for, for a lot of people listening to the podcast. Trey, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Where could people find out more information about you and your work um, and how can they get in contact with you if they want to do that? So I think the best place to follow me is on Twitter right now. Um, it's varied over time, but you can follow me on Twitter at Trey Henniger. That's T-R-E-Y-H-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R. Um, follow me there. I post all the content I produce, whether it's on my podcast, blog, or, or YouTube. So it, it funnels through that um, journey and you can see all my past stuff posted there. Um, but the best way to just kind of listen and follow my most active content is probably to, to subscribe to the podcast. Um, my podcast is DIY investing. Um, it's available everywhere. Apple, Spotify. Um, you can search through my name. You could search through the, um, DIY investing or, or maybe Andrew can link to it, but those are probably the best places. And then you can always find my blog and go from there. But if you want to reach out to me directly, you can use Twitter, send me a message or, uh, email me Trey at DIY Definitely. And everyone definitely should do that. One, an another way to become a better investor is to talk to other investors and you should definitely be talking to Trey. So, and we will put all that information in the show notes or the description if you're watching this on YouTube. But Trey, I want to thank you so much for coming on board with us again here today. Uh, a little bit of a longer podcast, but that's great because we went over three stocks and I think, you know, a lot of people are going to take a lot away from this podcast. So everybody else, I want to thank you so much for tuning in with Mr. Trey and myself. Be sure to hit the subscribe button, thumbs this video up, and we will see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along.